Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Nickleby, get in here. What is it, CW? I want you to set up a meeting with Ken Lay from Enron. I like the cut of his jib. Are you sure, CW? Oh, yeah. Here's the plan. I'm going to merge him with Lehman Brothers. I'll own 51% of the whole thing. I'll be an even bigger kingpin than I already am. Yeah, but... I got to take this. <laughs> yes, I'm greenlighting glitter. <laughs> Listen to me. Mariah Carey is going to be the biggest movie star of the century. She's got what I call sack. Singing, acting, cleavage. Glitter is going to break box office records. <laughs> throw Ishtar in my face. I still say that movie will make its money back on Sony Betamax and Laserdisc rentals. Nickleby, bring me a new Coke. They stopped making new Coke, CW. They did, but I've got a warehouse full of it because I know it's coming back. Hey, maybe we'll serve it at the games of my new XFL franchise. You bought an XFL team? Mm-hmm, the Knoxville imbeciles. The XFL is going to be huge, Nickleby. I gotta take this one. Johnny? Of course you should run. Not only are you going to run, you're going to be our next president. John Edwards. I love that guy. He's a lock. Somebody told me he... Gotta take this. Yes? No, I told you what to do. Move Leno to 10 p.m. He's a better fit there. Nickleby, sometimes I feel like I'm the only one out there using the old noodle. Noodle? CW? The big coconut, where all the ideas are stored up. Uh, So many of these seem like bad ideas. My grandfather used to say, there are no bad ideas, CW, just ideas that can ruin your life and take a lot of other people down with you. Why do I not find that reassuring? Because you got no spine, boy. I gotta introduce this damn show. I'm meeting Bernie Madoff for lunch. Now that's a man after my own heart. So here's a show about misery and misfortune. And now the guy who told Michael Jordan switched to baseball. Colin McEnroe. Okay, that was bad advice, too. All right, so yes, and it's, well, here's what we did. Here's what I should claim that we did is that, you know, given the news that Sepp Blatter has had to step down uh, as head of FIFA, we quickly organized a show about misfortune and schadenfreude, which obviously people will be trafficking in uh, today. But that's not really true. We've actually been planning the show for quite a while. Um, in fact, it was disrupted by misfortune. I think it was disrupted once when I got sick. And we've had our own share of we've had we kind of had a debacle on Friday. We wanted to do a live show in Great Barrington, and we really did have kind of a disaster. So it's it's on our minds, but it's on everybody's mind, right? I mean, in fact, the story of our lives, the story of the the stories that we remember of our lives, are probably inscribed more on these horrible incidents where something goes wrong than on the days when everything goes more or less right. Those are not particularly interesting days. But we also know that we really, really enjoy it. It's just—it's something we shouldn't be ashamed of. It's just natural. We really, really enjoy it when bad things happen to other people, especially certain other people. So we'll be exploring all of that. Plus, we'll be talking to somebody who, A, went through his own incredible debacle, but B, is involved in rescuing other people from their debacles and kind of trying to figure out how these things do go wrong and if we can possibly ever learn from this. But to get everything going— 
Uh, we've got Michael Farquhar. He's a former editor of The Washington Post and author of Bad Days in History, a gleefully grim chronicle of misery, misfortune, and mayhem. Later in the show, we'll also be talking to an expert in schadenfreude. Uh, but let's begin with you, Michael Farquhar. First of all, welcome to the show. Colin, thank you. That was a brilliant introduction. <laughs> well, we did. We covered a lot of ground there. We covered some. Well, actually, we could even start uh, since one of your things is mentioned in that introduction. Um, although before we get to that, and that's Lehman Brothers, but maybe before we get to that, let's let's talk about this book. So what you've done basically is take every day of the year and pin to it something that went horribly wrong on that day. So And so what you can do is a little game is you can look up your birthday or you can look up what day it is today and see what went wrong. So today I believe is June 2nd. So we'll just sort of page here in the book. I actually had it marked, but I can't find it. That's only a minute. There we go. So it's uh, the title of the um, entry is Double Lacrosse. This is about a time when it went very bad. Actually, it went pretty well for the Indians that day from a certain point of view for the Native Americans, but not so well uh, for the settlers. You want to tell us that story? Well, this is back in 1763 up in Michigan, and uh, this uh, British, cocky British major, George Etherington uh, thought he was, you know, he was dealing with a bunch of savages. But they had Lacrosse Day, which was, you know, a Native American pastime, and these uh, hundreds of Chippewa and Sauk Roy um, warriors gathered at this fort in Mackin- in what is now Mackinac City, Michigan, uh, to play a fun game of lacrosse. What the uh, what the general didn't know is that the uh, the Indians had something savage right up their sleeves, and uh, the ball went out of bounds and, and rolled into the fort, and the Indians went chasing after it and slaughtered everybody in the uh, in the fort. <laughs> so these guys, uh, these British, were uh, thinking they were they had uh, had it all over the Indians, but uh, it was a, mis- a deadly, lethal mistake on their part. Well, and the, and the two the tribes in question had made a very interesting calculation. And in, in other words, nobody was especially afraid of them out there with their lacrosse sticks, but they had sort of cached weapons on the persons of the women of the tribes, right? Exactly. Yeah, they uh, they just thought it was going to be a friendly game. Um, but yeah, these guys had it well planned and turned out to be a lot smarter than the than the uh, the elitist British. <laughs> You know, in reading your book and considering some of the other stories and the planning that went into today's show, you know, you, 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 we're doing a whole show tomorrow about patterns and the ability of humans to recognize patterns and the tendency of humans to see patterns where there are none. Well, I fell prey to that in preparing for today's show because one of the things we really want, we have a natural instinct as humans to say, well, what can I learn from this? Can I see patterns running through all this, possibly correctable patterns. And one that I see in this story, I see two things that I think uh, are going to come up again and again as we talk today. One of them is you use the phrase cockiness, right? I mean, cockiness precedes downfall pretty reliably. And uh, the other one is a kind of, it, it does strike me that um, sentimentality can get you in trouble and unsentimentality can breed success. So for, the, for those two tribes that day, they made a fairly unsentimental decision. They were going to hide deadly weapons on their wives and they were going to use them. So, I, but, so those are the two that I see there. As, as you go through all these, these are all very, very different kinds of stories. Some involve cockiness and hubris, some don't. Were there lessons that ultimately began to wash over you? You know, Colin, the biggest lesson that washed over me was the, the 
human nature never changes, ever. I mean, these, these stories range from ancient history all the way up to 2014. And the consistent part of them is that uh, greed and all those, the, the negative side of, of human character uh, has remained consistent over the millennia. And uh, it's gotten a lot of people in trouble. And this is the range from sports to pop culture to military history all over the all over the map, as you mentioned. And uh, that was just such an it's just such an entertaining view of humanity. The uh, I mean, history is full of triumphs, but more often than not, it's full of uh, comeuppance. Well, you know, you said um, you talked about greed. So let's and, and I think one of the other. Um, lessons you get looking at this is that people have the illusion or the self-delusion that they can control certain things, you know, and that, that, that there won't be unintended consequences. So there's that combined with a certain amount of greed uh, leads us to one of your examples. It's a, you title it Smother's Day. Uh, we've experienced Mother's Day recently. Uh, so tell us about the founding of Mother's Day and what happened to the founder of Mother's Day. Well, this isn't a story of greed so much as... Um, well, it is greed, ultimately. I mean, the, it's the greed that she didn't anticipate from a group of actually, other people. That's yeah. a very good point. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking of that angle. Anyway, this is about Anna Jarvis, the foundress of Mother's Day. She was a woman singularly obsessed with her own mother who had passed away and went on a relentless, fierce uh, campaign to have a national day of memory for her mother and all mothers. And she was very successful. She lobbied relentlessly and got what she wanted, ultimately. Woodrow Wilson signs into, uh, into law um, a national holiday recognizing mothers. That's exactly when the problems began, though. Uh, everybody kind of latched on to, uh, to this concept, including the, uh, pro- what she termed as the profiteers, these people that were uh, degrading this wonderful holiday she had established, uh, by selling flowers and candy and all the uh, all the terrible things that were should not have been associated with such a holy holiday as she, as she saw it, so the campaign that she had she had waged to begin Mother's Day became even more fierce for her to destroy that that monument. Uh, she would storm into floral places and uh, and and wreak havoc and and all all sorts of maniac behavior on the part of Anna Jarvis to the point where she ended up in an, in an insane asylum. Um, where never, her, care, where ever, her care was funded by the florists, oddly enough, right? And one, of, and one of the great ironies. And she never knew that. Yeah, but they thought, you know what? She doesn't like us anymore, but she, she created a great payday for us. And that, it's an interesting story also, Michael, because it, 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 um, it corrects a certain thing that people say all the time. People say about Valentine's Day, about Mother's Day, they, they say that was just invented by the greeting card and flower industry to create more money. Well, that's not quite true. It was invented by somebody else with a very sentimental and almost sacred purpose who thought she could control the nature of this holiday, successfully, successfully lobbied a president to, to declare it for her and then just, you know, didn't factor for or grossly underestimated the mercenary qualities of the marketplace. Absolutely. Very good example of that. So, um, you know, some people wind up being I, I, one of the things that struck me about your book was that some people wind up kind of being known for their disaster and some people don't. And 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 I, I 
once again looking for patterns, was trying to figure out sort of how that all works. So uh, on uh, August 16th, you have uh, Pete Best, Future Footnote. This is about the original drummer of the Beatles. For people who don't know that story, uh, tell it for us. Well, poor Pete Best, uh, you know, he was with those guys from the beginning. Uh, I mean, they all struggled together. Uh, and when they ultimately finally triumphed and got a, re- a record contract, uh, it was George Martin who kind of decided Pete Best's drumming wasn't up to par. And he was saying, well, look, let's lose somebody else in the studio, um, but we'll have Pete Best continue to tour. And the other guys were like, mm, nah, let's get, you know, let's give him the boot. So right as as I said, right on the eve of their breakthrough, this guy who could have been, you know, George, Paul, uh, John, and and Pete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound uh, the same somehow, though. It doesn't no, sound right. It really no. doesn't. It doesn't ring right. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it's he does actually become philosophical after several decades of wallowing in, in misery. Uh, you know, he said, look what happened to John Lennon. I'm, maybe I was the lucky one. Right. He's, I think, 71 years old now. Recently, he started touring with the Pete Best Band here in later life. He thought, well, you know, I might as well make a little bit of money out of this. And, I mean, this is also, interesting. Uh, interestingly, a story about something that's really out of his control. He wasn't cocky. He wasn't negligent. He just wasn't an especially good drummer. And he wasn't, uh, according to your, uh, your account, a really good personality fit. He wasn't really the same guy as George and Paul and John. They were sort of slightly from a, they, they talked and thought a certain way and he just, he didn't fit in at that level. But you can't really blame Pete Best for any of this. He's just there being acted upon by the tides of fate in history. And and he winds up kind of a la Bill Buckner and some other people. He just winds up kind of being known for there's only one thing he's known for, which is he didn't get to be in the Beatles. Now you contrast that with some people who who are in your book, who are not known for their failure, but they're in your book for their failure, their misfortune, their disaster, their misery. And Paul Revere is a great example. All we know about Paul Revere, it's, it helps to have someone write a poem about you, if it's a nice poem. Uh, all we know about Paul Revere is why he's just one of the great patriotic figures. He's this incredible uh, piece of American mythos. But um, he really did have kind of a bad day on the water. Tell us about uh, Paul Revere's, how he blew it by sea, as you say. Well, Colin, you know, you mentioned that poem that that made him uh, an icon of American history. But, you know, that wasn't written to uh, uh, Longfellow didn't write that till years and years later. I mean, Revere was basically wallowing in obscurity and really. Um, up until that time, what he was known for was this incredible naval disaster uh, up in Maine where British forces just crushed uh, the far superior U.S. Navy. And Revere was in large part blamed for that. He was, you know, he was told that he had uh, scurried away like a coward, all sorts of negative things that were put on him. And he begged, begged for a military hearing so he could clear his name, and it didn't happen for years. And ultimately he did, but he lived under the shadow of of uh, contempt for a long time. And then, thank God, it was long after he was dead, but Longfellow came along, wrote The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, and that's how we know him now. But, uh, and, and this happens a lot. I mean, uh, this isn't in your book, but I mean, another example from the same war. This is something 
uh, regular listeners to the show will know this is kind of a, an obsession of mine. So Nathan Hale, who is the uh, official hero of the state of Connecticut, you know, I mean, he was an unsuccessful spy. He was, a, by all accounts, a great guy. He wasn't a trained spy. He was he had the courage to volunteer and go over and do this and try to do some reconnaissance over on Long Island. Got caught almost immediately, uh, was uh, was hanged for it. And um, But nobody ever knew about this. I mean, this was not a popular story during the Revolutionary War. Very unlikely that George Washington ever heard the name Nathan Hale. It wasn't really until the early 19th century that people started writing poems about him and, and essays in the Atlantic. And there were all kinds of um, kind of secondary reasons why people needed to build up the myth of Nathan Hale. Part of it was because Yale didn't have as many Revolutionary War heroes as did Princeton and Harvard and King's College. And then... Um, and also because um, America didn't have a spy figure, a spy hero, the way the uh, the British did with uh, with Major John Andre. So it is kind of you know the, your boy, your book makes this point too. There's what actually happens, which some sometimes really sucks, you know. And then there's the myth making machinery, which can correct for that. Absolutely, uh, that's the best illustration. I didn't know a lot of what you just said. Um... Maybe that's uh, just for the next yes. bit, book Mis- of bad days. Yeah, misfortune too. But don't make Nathan look too bad. I, I actually really do think he was a pretty good guy. He just, I mean, America didn't have any spies, so he just no, he, tried, no, he, he tried to be one. I, I, you know, the goal in this isn't to make fun of everybody in history. It's, uh, you know, some of these stories are, as, well, Pete Best, the one you, we just talked about, is a perfect example. Nice guy, good guy. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not sitting there going, you know, loser or fool. I mean, you, it was. It was just, the, you know, fate that uh, bought him this terrible distinction of being the Beatle footnote. Um, nothing against the guy, and I can, and I can see the same thing with Hale. Uh, we're going to continue talking about misfortune, misery, disasters. If you have something to contribute, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon. We're going to get into schadenfreude in just a second. But before we do, since I did kind of promise it at the beginning, so one thing that we've seen is, uh, and, and talk about a pattern, but it's a pattern we don't seem to kind of recognize or correct for, are, is a long series of financial firms uh, going belly up and pulling people with them. And so if you were listening to the intro, uh, she's talking about how she's going to buy Enron and merge it with Lehman Brothers. Um, and, and when you look at the Enron story and the Lehman Brothers story, you really can see patterns that are happening, ways in which if you'd studied Enron pretty carefully, you might actually know some of what was going to happen with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and stuff like that. So, But uh, um, Lehman Brothers is something that, that you do a single out in the book, Michael. What, what did you learn? from it now this is hubris at its well actually the uh the, the headline for that date september 15 2008 is here's looking at who hubris the lehman debacle and this guy dick fold uh i think that's pr- the pr- yeah, proper so. pronunciation yeah. well they called him the gorilla or he called himself the gorilla so let's refer to him as the gorilla i mean you talk about arrogance um this guy was in his cohorts were riding an incredible successful wave and a lot of what i couldn't because of space would couldn't include i mean they would high five each other all the time yo bro we're the you know we are the dudes i mean it was like college frat boys you know in, in charge of billions um you know and then in 2008 along with everything else you know the reality struck the the layman went down and uh the last thing that Dick Fold uh, experienced with Lehman Brothers was, a, was an employee who had lost all his money punching him in the face. 
Yeah, I didn't know that's the, that story, the story about the punch in the face that, uh, that's at the end of this segment of your book. Uh, and I, I have to say, and this will set us up very well for the next segment, I was kind of happy you got punched in the face. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with more stories of misery and misfortune. We're going to add to it the schadenfreude component. When everybody says no, 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 well, it's your misfortune and none of my own. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Well, it's your misfortune that sweetens my song. I can be the friend you want. I can be your confidant. I'm telling you, Flanders' store was deserted. So what do you think of your bestest buddy now, Marge? Dad, do you know what schadenfreude is? No, I do not know what schadenfreude is. Please tell me because I'm dying to know. It's a German term for shameful joy, taking pleasure in the suffering of others. Oh, come on, Lisa. I'm just glad to see him fall flat on his butt. He's usually all happy and comfortable and surrounded by loved ones, and it makes me feel... What's the opposite of that shameful joy thing of yours? Sour grapes. Boy, those Germans have a word for everything. They do, don't they? Sour grapes. So, so I have to quickly tell a story before we get, even get into this. So one of my uh, great friends in Hartford for many years was Patrick McCackie, who was the director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum. And Patrick, every story involving Patrick is great because he has um, a, an Australian accent and piled on to- then that's piled on top of an Irish accent, born in Dublin originally, then moved to Australia, and a stammer. So it, it, it's, it's everything he says is very sort of memorable just in the way he says it. So we were uh, at a group meeting one time in one of the other museums. Was the Hillstead? Uh, one of the other museums was having some really terrible problems, and two mem- two boards. They sort of had different boards trying to take over the museum at the same time. And uh, someone at this gathering asked how past Patrick how his board was regarding this incredible, horrible drama playing out at the Hillstead. And he said, "Well, I think the, they're looking at it uh, with an attitude not untinctured by Schadenfreude." And I thought, "Wow! I mean, who who else could spin off?" not untinctured with schadenfreude. So uh, we have to talk a little bit, a little bit about this. So we uh, are going to continue with Michael Farquhar. He's going to be with us for the whole show. But we're adding to the conversation Richard H. Smith. His book is The Joy of Pain, uh, Schadenfreude and the Dark Side of Human Nature. He is, I'm holding this book right now, he's a professor of psychology at the University of Kentucky. Uh, and he's been listening to, to a little bit anyway of the proceedings. But um, maybe, Richard Smith, we could begin. I, I, I found myself wondering going into this. This is a term we sling around a lot. There's no real English language equivalent of it. I wondered whether anybody in particular had coined it or whether it just kind of surfaced in the German language uh, the way German words do as just a word that's needed to talk about something that's real. Well, that's a, that's a good question. It, I know some German terms do evolve that way. I think Schadenfrey is a little bit more uh, along a tradition of if it's use, but uh, it is true that we don't have an equivalent in the English language, and some people have tried to infer something about German and the German language that they do have the word. <laughs> uh, but it turns out it is its equivalents in other languages as well. I, I'm not really quite sure if anyone can even answer the question of why English doesn't, because uh, perhaps because uh, English is good at kind of borrowing words better from other languages. In fact, indeed, we it's essentially a word we use now. 
Yeah, no, it's. I, I think it is, uh, you know, pretty much an accepted part of the English language. And um, I don't know if you can use it at Scrabble, but you should be able to use it at Scrabble. Everybody <laughs> uses it. So um, one of the questions that I, I think I have is schadenfreude is usually, I don't, I, it doesn't really necessarily have a pejorative connotation, right? I mean, I think we sort of know that we shouldn't. We feel as though we shouldn't take pleasure in the misfortune of others. But I, I think we also understand that this, that just kind of the way the whole human race rolls, right? It's, it's almost an instinct we can't fight. Uh, it kind of depends who you ask. There is generally a little ambivalence about feeling it. I think most people sense maybe they shouldn't, uh, unless the circumstances bring about the misfortune kind of take away the guilt that may come along with it. But I, you know, it, it's prevalent enough, and most people can recognize so many situations where they felt it, that it has a sense in which it's kind of a natural, inevitable feeling uh, that one can't really fight in that you know, sense. You know, it seems to me that it, has, it comes in different flavors. Um, I mean, there's there's the sort of plain vanilla schadenfreude, which is just, it's kind of what Homer Simpson is doing there. It's somebody else that he knows, who he maybe envies a little bit anyway, and that guy's having some bad times, and that makes Homer happy. And so, I mean, we and I think we can all kind of recognize that, and we hope, yeah. we hope it's not too prevalent in ourselves. But then there are these other kinds. I would say one of them is what I would classify as the, the sort of Ted Haggard, uh, experience, which also can spill over into Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and a whole bunch of other people. Somebody who has held himself up or herself up, Laura Schlesinger, as some kind of moral exemplar and kind of a censor too. somebody who is who is going to dictate morality to other people and who then has this horrible crashing fall. I mean, Ted Haggard had this collapse that not only seemed to involve a homosexual outside marriage liaison, but maybe meth uh, as well. And, and there's something in us that takes a special relish in that, right? Because you set yourself up as better than me and, and you were prepared to dictate to me and now you're lower than me. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me of something I read on the Internet soon after that happened. Someone said, I love the, the smell of hypocrisy in the morning. <laughs> and there's a special set of factors in that, those kind of cases that really bring out the special pleasure of schadenfreude. And I don't think it even comes with even a tincture of, of guilt uh, in those kind of cases. And here's somebody literally setting themselves up above you morally, and no one wants to feel inferior to anybody on any dimension, but especially moral dimension. And then they get caught for exactly what they've been pointing the finger at others for doing. And furthermore, in case of people like Haggard, they're also willing to punish people for the, the thing that they're doing. And so all those things together, when they get exposed, I mean, that's... That's hugely entertaining, actually. Uh, very satisfying emotionally in all kinds of ways. Now, there's a somewhat milder version of that, and I'm going to bring Michael Farquhar back into this conversation. You know, and it, it's not somebody who's as censorious uh, as maybe a Ted Haggard, but somebody who's kind of riding high and somebody who seems to be kind of trying to set a particular tone based on his or her best qualities. And you can almost sort of say, whom the gods would dis destroy, they first make incredibly successful. So Michael Farquhar, at a certain point um, in, in the American modern cultural history, there was nobody more successful and nobody more admired than Oprah Winfrey. And one of the things you describe in, her, in your book is what happened 
happen when she decided to make a movie uh, out of Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved. Uh, Michael, I'll let you take up the story from there. Wow, that's, you know, that is quite the tale. And there was something extraordinarily enjoyable about what happened to her. I mean, you're, as you said, Oprah was riding high. Uh, she was, I, a lot of people saw her as really getting uh, arrogant. Uh, certainly preachy. Uh, Tom Shales of the Washington Post said, you know, everybody's getting a little sick of Oprah being the national nanny. Anyway, uh, she puts her heart and soul into this uh, film adaptation of, of Toni Morrison's novel and, uh, you know, makes such a production out of it. And really, it's a production all about Oprah. I mean, the day it was released, she's on her show, I'm having my baby, and excited and getting the audience all revved up. And, you know, at another point, she's at a, at a lecture and she's telling Rosa Parks, civil rights icon Rosa Parks, this is my gift to you. And it bombed. I mean, it was a massive failure. The Bride of Chucky beat it at the box office to give you an idea of what kind of disaster we're talking about here. And, you know, it was it was, you know, Oprah had it basically took to her bed. I think she said at one point uh, years later, because I don't think she could make fun of herself for quite some time. You know, I, I ate literally two and a half pounds of macaroni and cheese to get over the to get over the bad feelings of this epic disaster and she was so cocky about it and so believed that everybody although her legions of fans were going to flock to the theaters um and at one point foolishly she tries to blame it on uh you know the Americans' distaste or inability to come to terms with you know our slavery past and i kind of point out in the book you know uh, it, countless millions of Americans turned in to watch root tuned in to watch roots you know several decades before it wasn't she that argument just didn't work it was a preachy uh movie from a preachy producer and actress and uh you know, she got it handed to her. Well, no, so let's go to Richard on this first. But before this, I just quickly want to say one thing that did become clear in your account of this, Michael Farquhar, and this is from the book Bad Days in History, is that um, Oprah, Oprah's really, really smart. So one thing she did do eventually is make this part of her story. In other words, one of the things she's done incredibly effectively is to be fairly candid about herself and tell stories about herself. And so she's now got that macaroni and cheese story. And there's just a bunch of other things she said about what an incredibly dark period in her life this is. She was smart enough to know that everybody's watching her on her Joseph Campbell journey uh, through life. And so it's good to have uh, a failure story. And eventually uh, she seems to have figured that out. Um, But Richard Smith, this is sort of another this this is a story that's kind of more in the Icarus category, right? Or the Daedalus and Icarus category that if you fly too close to the sun, you will be brought low. Well, uh, what I was uh, reminded of was uh, one of the first studies on Schadenfreude, it was actually not labeled Schadenfreude, but was uh, one in which it was actually inspired by what happened with uh, President Kennedy after the Cuban Missile Crisis, because uh, at that point, I mean, he was very, very popular, and then the crisis hit, and then some of the opinions on him actually went up mm-hmm. after that. And so the question was, Why? In a way, he was too perfect, mm-hmm. and it kind of humanized him. Oh, wouldn't it, wouldn't that have been the Bay of Pigs fiasco that probably did oh, that? I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, um, my mistake. But, uh, and I think maybe with there, there may be things that she did after the fact to kind of humanize her too by making fun of herself. So 
maybe on some level she appreciated. She was just, in, in effect, too perfect uh, for her audience, and she needed to be kind of made more human. Well, one of the things that you also explore in your book, Richard Smith, is this kind of notion um, we we sometimes call it karma. That there is there's almost a way that we believe that there's almost a way in which the universe sorts things out to a level of equilibrium. That if you do bad things, um, bad things will happen to you. Um, or if if you if you exceed what is really sort of justifiably given to you somehow, that'll be sorted out too. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that, that sense of karma, that somewhere within schadenfreude is some, sometimes, maybe it's the way we justify schadenfreude, that's karma, that was supposed to happen to that person. Yeah, I mean, um, and to some extent, most of us believe that the world is a just place because the alternative is, disturbing. Uh, if we think that things happening essentially random and not following some kind of justice principle, then that suggests a kind of a chaos, which is pretty unsettling. So what that would suggest is that almost any event that occurs has got a kind of rhyme reason to it, a kind of a justice component. So whatever happens to somebody on some level has got to be, in some sense, a function of some process which made it a just outcome. Uh, and so you know, psychologists have looked at that, and, and there it, it does seem to be a kind of a general, for most people, a belief or a desire for the world essentially to be a just place. And so the events that occur fit into that uh, desire and, and belief. Although, once again, and this does sort of um, preface tomorrow's show, I mean, that's what, that's what we do, right? We, ba- we basically insist that there's a pattern, whether there is or not, and then grab things that fit into it. So Michael Farquhar, one of the examples of this in your book, is Richard Nixon, right? This is maybe it's the primal American example of this, that when Nixon fell, when Nixon collapsed, you know, there were everything that everybody had ever suspected about him turned out to be true. And there was this kind of national sense of he had it coming. We knew this day would come. What goes around comes around. Right. I mean, this is that's the way we told that story. Absolutely. Uh, And when he uh, his crash, uh, I think he told himself the same story that uh, well, he told himself a story that everything was fine and that he was legitimate and everything he did. But when he finally crashed and realized, you know, this is the end. Uh, you know, I give a pretty detailed account for that's the specific bad day associated with him, although you could pick any year, any day of the ca- of the calendar and it would be a bad day for Tricky Dick Nixon. But this is when he collapses uh, and, in a heap on the floor in the White House and starts crying uh, and praying with Henry Kissinger um, when the when you know, when the whole karmic uh, explosion ha- occurred, it, it seems to have concentrated on that singular moment where he got bombed. Uh, and curled up in the fetal position on the floor of the White House, uh, boozy and weeping and praying. <laughs> yeah, well, we have to be clear. Whenever you're talking about Nixon and Kissinger, that when you say bombed in this case, you mean drunk. But um, they did the other guy bombing too. But um, so you know, Richard Klein. Um, earlier in the show today, uh, we Richard Smith. I'm sorry, Richard Smith. Earlier in the show today, we were talking about uh, Mother's Day and how um, ultimately this woman who had this sort of lovely sacred idea about memorializing her mother and other mothers um, couldn't anticipate the degree to which it would be commodified. Well, it seems to me that one of the things that we've done here now is 
commodify the exact process that we're talking about. I think you call it humilitainment, that so much of reality television, I mean, we've just been through this uh, with the Duggar family, uh, but so much of reality television and stuff like that is, is sort of about our enjoying bad things yeah. <laughs> happening to people. You can pick up this thread. Yeah, a lot of the, the shows essentially set up the psychological gratification uh, that the audience is going to get from you know, whatever the, the is being focused on. So uh, what I talk about in my book is the, uh, the uh, social comparison benefits of a lot of reality TV. We essentially, what we're being provided with is a downward comparison, uh, some way to boost the self. Uh, and psychologically, that's a, a very powerful thing. And on top of that, a lot of the people's behavior on the shows essentially create this sort of just just world deservingness experience as well. So whatever happens to them, whatever the producers come up with that ends up being a misfortune for them is essentially deserved because of their personal qualities, their arrogant or the things they bring upon themselves and so forth. So it's a kind of a double benefit of I'm better than that person and also they deserve what they're getting. And it's a very a potent and pleasing combination. You know, we asked uh, another prominent uh, psychologist to talk about that. Uh, that would be Fraser from the show, Fraser. Would it be presumptuous to sing in front of your guests? Well, I, I think we could persuade the piano player to play it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Niles, Niles, I've done it. I have found his Achilles heel. <gasps> Who's? Clint's. Oh, oh. I just heard him singing. The man is completely tone deaf. He's about to launch into a rendition of Isn't It Romantic that will simply peel the enamel from your teeth. <laughs> Are you sure you want to let him do that? What do you mean? Well, you have your victory. You're a wonderful singer. Isn't it enough to know that? Do you really need to see him humiliate himself? Yes. <laughs> so, Richard Smith, you know, in the, within the world of psychology, within the, within the world of transference and countertransference, I suppose it's a struggle, actually, for real therapists. You, you spend so much time, or they spend so much time, listening to people recount their troubles, you know, but you don't want to be the person who's sitting there kind of, kind of, sort of happy that this didn't happen to you and kind of maybe even amused. I mean, is this something that, that in, in psychological training people have to work on? I don't know whether that's, that comes up so much, except that I would imagine that from the therapist's point of view, it would be hard to imagine that the client is feeling superior to the therapist. And the therapist is on some level always going to be wanting to be the person who knows more than the client. Uh, and you don't want a reversal. Otherwise, your credibility is shot. Good point. Uh, all right, um, we're going to have to wrap up this segment here. We want to thank uh, Richard Smith so much. His book, The Joy of Pain, Schadenfreude, and the Dark Side of Human Nature. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We have one more segment for you, taking a different kind of misfortune. Watching tourists reading maps. Football players getting tackled. CEOs getting shackled. Watching actors never reach the ending of their Oscar speech. Schadenfreude. You heard it here first. Schadenfreude is never okay. Except in the connection with the Duggar family sex scandal. And the Sony hack. And the Murdoch News Corporation debacle. Okay, maybe I have to rethink this. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich, Katie McAuliffe, and Anna Geismar. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lupe Fiasco. 
For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff paying full retail for segues, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, why we see patterns in everything. And now, back to Colin. You can always get a deal on a segue. All right, we're going to talk uh, finally here about, and, and I think schadenfreude plays less of a role here because so often these are stories uh, about people kind of uh, in the grip of nature and, and in the grip of really sort of frightening situations uh, that they don't entirely understand and over which they don't have that much power. Although I suppose for the people who are idiots and wind up uh, having to endanger other people by being rescued, maybe we could talk about schadenfreude. Anyway, Jordan Fisher-Smith is uh, with us, a uh, former park ranger and an author of Nature Noir. He's appeared on NPR, On Point, and Living on Earth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And I've got to say, I, I didn't really experience any schadenfreude when you got so sick we had to cancel the show that's, before. That's right. Actually, I mentioned that at the top of the show. Yeah, I, I remember that. I, I was, uh, yes, I, I believe me. Uh, if you'd seen me, you would have just felt sorry for me. Uh, anyway, um, Let's begin with your own story. You know, you had your own experience of uh, misery and misfortune uh, and, and near disaster. Uh, this incredible story of um, uh, what seemed like it would be a very pleasant and bucolic and very much coveted trip, a kind of trip most people don't get to take, um, rafting down the Colorado River inside the Grand Canyon. Uh, what could be better except that um, swine flu <laughs> started to spread? I'm sorry to be laughing about that. It's not funny at all. I mean, swine flu actually attacked your entire party. Well, that's what we think. Uh, as we've reconstructed it, uh, you know, the, these private trips on rivers are sort of uh, ad hoc affairs where, uh, you know, everybody puts in for the permits on the great North American rivers. Uh, few people get them. And then when they get them, they start calling up their friends or texting or emailing their friends uh, and inviting them to put together a party. And uh, so our party consisted of all kinds of people from all kinds of places. We had you know, people of all walks of life. We had a guy, Silicon Valley millionaire who'd cashed in his chips and gone kayaking for the rest of his life. We had a vegetarian chef. We had a guy who owns a whitewater outfitter company and his rancher girlfriend and, you know, a variety of people. One of the people was, uh, was a, a professional helicopter pilot who'd been working on a contract uh, of an American company for the Mexican government fighting fires in, in forest fires in the remote mountains of Mexico. As it turns out, we, we think this guy picked up uh, an early case, an, an undetected case of the H1N1, or what they call the swine flu, and brought it to us on our trip. <laughs> so we became what we think is the, the, the first uh, American victims of this disease before it was officially recognized in the United States. You, know, you wrote about this in, on one of our favorite online publications, which is either called Eon or Ion or Aeon. I've never figured out how to pronounce it. But anyway, it's a, we love this publication. and Your piece was really great. And I thought one of the things that it illustrated is how mere misfortune can be compounded to, to, to near disaster when you have a group of people with competing agendas where everybody is not all moving towards the same goal. So in your group, you had um, at least one person who felt that if, if this story got out and the whole mission had to be aborted or something, that his permit, this permit that he'd worked so hard to get to do this and which he anticipated getting more of, would be compromised in some way. You, you had another person who had maybe shared certain prescription medications with the, with the victim in an off-label kind of way, maybe just as soon have this whole thing blow over and, and not be discussed. Uh, you had another person who just, for whatever reason, kept thinking, no, we need to get a little further, we need to get a little further. 
further before we can helicopter this person out. And my sense that for, was that for you, Jordan, it, this made it difficult that not everybody wanted to do the same thing in the same way. Well, it almost cost this guy his life. And, uh, you know, um, this is something we see a lot. And, you, you know, you mentioned that I, I spent, you know, two, 21 years uh, going to disasters as a park ranger. You know, park ranger is kind of a one-size-fits-all fits all, um, disaster specialist in remote places. And, uh, you know, everything that can happen to people uh, in a city can happen to them in the wilderness, except it takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder to get them out of there. And uh, that was my life and uh, continued to be my life and my adventures after working as a ranger. So, uh, you know, when these things happen, a um, couple of things happen. One is they bring out all the problems in a party that you didn't know you had, all the potentials in people that can cost somebody their life come out as soon as something big happens. The second thing is, as you mentioned, that factors are often weighted too high in the decision-making process uh, other than safety, meaning, uh, j just as you said, there's one guy who, who had gotten this permit who was afraid that if we uh, medevac this guy uh, and it turned out that he just had a bad flu, the Park Service would never give us another permit. So, and then there's somebody else who had, you know, a well-meaning guy who had shared some prescription medication with the victim and the victim subsequently lost consciousness, and the first thing this guy, who's a real estate developer from Oregon, thought is, they'll sue me now. So he wouldn't give us the medicine bottle, and I couldn't, I didn't know what this guy was on. You know, um, Michael Farquhar, um, in some ways, the story that he's telling is kind of a smaller but desperate and frightening version of a lot of stories that we know about outdoor explorers. One of the ones that you highlight in your book, Bad Days in History, and we have to tell this kind of fast, we're almost out of time, but it is the story of Scott's 1912 expedition to the South Pole, right? Yeah, that was one of several uh, disaster stories in the book, uh, explorers' disaster stories. Uh, this was, you know, a hugely ambitious project, uh, and uh, everything was seemed to be going well until they got to the uh, South Pole and realized, oh, damn it to hell! They, you know, uh, the competing Swiss uh, explorer, or Swedish explorer. Nor there are Norwegians, I think. Yeah, Norwegians. Thank you. You know, that's Alzheimer's. <laughs> Don't enjoy that too much. It's my problem. <laughs> the uh, had gotten there already, and. It, it, so that so the trip is in vain, and then the return the return trip uh, to get back to where they where they started just killed them all. Ultimately, um, the Donner Party is another example. One one wrong turn, and that famous story begins. Well, you know, These, I, I want to go back to Jordan Fisher Smith uh, for a second because our time is limited. So one of the things that's often said about the Scott expedition is that it was marred by a number of things, including sort of a cloudy sentiment. You know, the British are very sentimental about dogs and, and horses, and they involved dogs and horses in all kinds of bizarre ways. The, the Norwegians had decided that to, um, in order to do this, they were going to have to eat some of their dogs uh, and, and feed some of their dogs to their other dogs. That, that was the only way to make the whole sort I mean, of— I think I know what you're talking about here. That you have, that you have to— think clearly in these yeah, situations. But, but also, there's this thing that, you know, I spent my life investigating fatalities and accidents, and I, of all people, got very, very aware of all the ways and scenarios by which things can go terribly wrong. But when you're out there in the outdoors doing stuff, um, uh, there, there's a balance between um, being well aware of the scenarios that lead to disaster and not constantly focusing on them. 
you know. Uh, we found when we were, I mean, this is well known among people who work the roads at night. If we stop in a, on a lonely mountain road to, to, to aid somebody whose car uh, was disabled or to make a vehicle stop or something, uh, you know, you have those, those flashing lights on the back of your patrol car. Well, drunks tend to head toward what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And a drunk coming along behind you will, will focus their eyes on the flashing police lights. Now, if you're a drunk, the last thing you want to do is get arrested for hitting a police car. But they inevitably head toward the flashing car. We're the same. You know, we tend to focus sometimes on the worst things in our lives in order to avoid them. And we end up doing them because of that. So being moving in the outdoors is partly knowing what can happen and partly not looking down and thinking a lot about falling or drowning. Yeah, but I think the other part of that, too, is I think people have a tendency to imagine a path to success or a path to having a pleasant experience. So I'm starting at the base of Mount Washington. It's 70 degrees. You know, it's whatever day it is. Uh, I'm going to go on this wonderful hike. Um, and and why, why would things be otherwise? And I'm, there's just a whole lot of people who don't stop and think, well, what could go wrong? You know, wh- what else should I know besides the fact that I'm standing here in my T-shirt and shorts and it's 75 degrees and I'm about to hike up Mount Washington, right? All they're thinking about is the time they're going to have yeah that's very true and you know that most of our victims failed to uh failed to scenario the the potential danger yeah i think i think because we basically we want to believe we're going to have a good time we don't want to believe that we're going to be caught in some horrible storm and freeze to death although some of this is also temperament i'm actually probably the kind of person who believes the latter jordan fisher smith so great to talk to you former park ranger uh and author of nature noir he's appeared on npr on point living on earth uh thanks also to michael farquhar uh, his book uh is bad days in history uh, and also to richard smith his uh, book is the joy of pain it's the story of schadenfreude thanks especially to betsy kaplan who's also the kind of person who worries what could go wrong what kind of horrible thing could happen uh i think that's a temperament that she and i both share also thanks to kion wolf a little bit more the kind of person i think thinks you know things are gonna work out pretty well right it's gonna be a good day all right well it takes both kind to make up the world we'll be back tomorrow with the search for patterns try harder maybe This is not your year This is not your year no. It's just not your year This is not your year Greg, I'm having a shout and try to party. Do you want to come? Sure, I'd love to. Too bad. You're not invited, loser. Ouch. This is going to be the best party ever.